Hello, futurists, innovators, visionaries, and writers and readers. We're here to kick off this new year with a deep dive into the future of the book, how books will be written and how they'll be read. I'm Grant Faulkner. I'm a writer and editor and publisher. And one thing I know is that the future of the book is here more so than it's ever been, especially with AI being such a factor and such a question mark. And it's interesting because books were just printed books for hundreds of years. But in, but in my lifetime and my, especially the last uh, couple decades, we're experiencing major shifts in how we read and write and they're happening so quickly. And I have to say, I'm pretty old school. I still read print books to the extent that they're a fire hazard in my house. And I, I haven't quite taken to audiobooks despite my love of podcasts. And perhaps most notably, I don't read eBooks, but I, but I remember the brief era when eBooks were considered a threat to print books, like print books were going to go away. Uh, I'm here with my co-host, Brooke Warner, who is also a writer, editor, and publisher. And Brooke, do you remember when everyone thought eBooks would rise up and essentially kill print books and that that was a bad thing? Oh my gosh, I certainly do. And namely because it wasn't just one fire drill. That happened multiple times where there's been some sort of doomsday prophesizing about the death of print, but print just refuses to be killed. Uh, so there's that. And as we say in the publishing industry, print is king. It's still king. Hmm. And I think it's going to stay king, honestly. That's so fascinating because the technology has been around for 500 years. So it's good, solid technology there. <laughs> it sure is. I'm excited because our guest today is Maya Thomas, and she's the chief innovation officer at Hachette, which means it's her job to essentially figure out the future of the book. And what's especially interesting is that she's the only chief innovation officer in all of publishing. So it's a treat to have her on, especially since we're coming off a year when everyone has been so concerned uh, about AI. So to start our conversation today, I thought it would be good uh, just to give a little history of the book to put today's conversation in context. Also, because it's, it's important to remember that books have always been a technology themselves. So the future of the book is closely related to the history of technology. And here's some milestones just to consider. So in 3000 BC, the Sumerians used pictograms or cuneiform writing on clay tablets. And, and just so you know, the first writing was actually related to money and accounting. <laughs> and then 500 BC, the first books were created, but as handwritten scrolls. And then it was in 1230 AD that the first metal movable type, and that was, was created, and that was in Korea. And then in 1377, the first movable metal print book, uh, Jikji, was printed in Korea. And then it was 1454 AD that uh, Gutenberg built a printing press to print the, you know, the Gutenberg Bible to start. So, you know, before the invention of the printing press, the majority of books were written and copied by hand. So the printing press, which essentially ushered in our modern version of the book, you know, it's interesting to think about how technology revolutionized the world and it changed the core of our existence in so many ways. And, and innovations like movable type and steam powered presses accelerated manufacturing processes. And then that led to increased literacy rates. You know, when the first printing press was made, only a few knew how to read. And I, I just read about this, how townspeople would, would hire those people who could read to them to read to them in groups. But the press, you know, obviously quickened the spread of knowledge and discoveries and literacy. And it also contributed to the Protestant Reformation that split apart the Catholic Church because Martin Luther was essentially the first best-selling author, other than God, <laughs> the Bible itself. <laughs> and Brooke, it's interesting to me, I guess, just to repeat, I said this earlier, but that the original printing press technology was good enough or has been good enough for us for 500 plus years. But then here we are, and suddenly in just the last 20 to 30 years, we're going through another revolution that might be as significant as the Gutenberg press itself. 
So I'm curious, what are the biggest things that have happened in your career to change the publishing side of things and then by correlation, just the way we read? Yeah. So I started in publishing in 2000 and I really did witness early in those years, the rise of eBooks, the rise of self-publishing, the rise of audiobooks. Those were all in existence, but they weren't as core to publishing as they are now. Like you said, it was all about print, right? So these other things were on the horizon, but people were like, oh, we're not going to read digital. Audiobooks were very clunky and kind of hard to produce and self-publishing was crap, (laughs) you know? So Mm -hmm. like all these things have just been revolutionized by better and better technology. And then in more recent years, I've witnessed the rise of emerging and alternative publishing models. So you know, there have been some trends that have come and gone, of course, and then there have been ones that have been permanent and long lasting. I was thinking about open road media because they did this thing where they realized early on that a lot of publishing houses did not have the digital rights to various books on their backlists. And that was just because their contracts had not accounted for the existence of ebooks back in the day when said contracts were negotiated. Now, of course, uh, publishing contracts are super far reaching. And because of that, your contracts will say things like the publisher holds this and that right and any known media that will ever be invented in the future, right? And the reason that publishers do this, of course, is to account for those losses that publishers experienced when they started to lose things like the rights to their digital content. I mean, to go back to your question, though, like when I was first in publishing, I said self-publishing was desktop publishing. It was not good. Uh, It was a dead end because there wasn't even Amazon KDP yet to allow people to self-publish their files with the click of a button or for that matter to sell, right? I mean, that's a huge thing that Amazon Marketplace has done for us in the last 20 years. Uh, And then we just take it all for granted now. Like it's easy and normal. What was unthinkable, uh, you know, even as early as 2000, when I started in publishing uh, audiobooks, I said they were clunky, but you guys will remember, listeners will remember those giant cassette tapes, you know, and you would take this huge thing out of the library. I used to rent them and then I would be like, okay, I have 14 tapes to put into my tape cassette, you know, in my old Saturn. So, you know, it's, it's just fascinating how far we've come. Um, and it, it is a revolutionary. I mean, like you said, 20, 30 years, a total revolution. And I think because we've lived in it, we haven't seen how far we've come. And so it's good to stop and take stock. Yeah, definitely revolutionary. And and I think it's interesting because most of the things you listed, you know, they're, they're initially seen as threats in some way and then turned into opportunities. Mm-hmm. And I just think that's important to remember since reading and writing, you know, they've always been informed by technology and technology is, you know, is always both a threat and, and an opportunity. And so I was thinking about different ways that technology relates to writing. And, and I think it's a little less dramatic or threatening because the, the technology has helped writers so, um, so much. You know, I, I remember when the inventor of the cut and paste technology died, there was a line in the obituary that said that was perhaps the most important technology ever developed for <laughs> writers. You know, no mm-hmm. one, I mean, with the idea that no one knew his name, you know, but when you think about it, that that is the function I use so much, you know, and that I can't imagine living without because I, I haven't written a story or a novel on a typewriter, you know, in, in decades. And, and now some people literally dictate their novels or, or, or write them, you know, while they're commuting or write portions of them that way. And I, I think about how, you know, Google Docs, which we now totally take for granted, 
but it ushered in, you know, collaborative writing, which which didn't exist before, you know, or at least not in the way that it exists now so prolifically. And then since publishing platforms are creating different ways to read, uh, that's also influencing how people write. And I'm thinking about things like serialization platforms, like, like, of course, serialization always existed, but it exists differently now because of the platforms themselves. And then things like fan fiction communities developing online. And, and as Maya is going to talk, uh, you know, there are possibilities for augmented reality in the metaverse, you know, which, which provide questions of, of co-creation with readers becoming writers, essentially. So, so Brooke, now I have a, a big question for you. How do you feel about the future of the book with not only all these changes going on, but, but with AI and other things as well? Because sometimes people question whether listening to a book is reading a book. And I always answer yes. But I wonder if I'll answer yes to essentially living a story in the metaverse or having more media rich experiences of a story. You know, I wonder if we need the intimacy of a story where it's just us and the author's words to call it reading. Good question. Yeah, because I listen to so many audiobooks and I, I think about it as a different kind of reading experience. But if someone said, you know, did you read an audiobook? I would say no, I listened to it, right? So there's just different ways of interpreting. Um, I, I do think we're in a similar place to where I found myself in the early 2000s, though, which is you know, I knew that digital and audiobooks were a thing, but not how ubiquitous they were going to be and not how I was going to interact with them. We're there with AI now because it's here. We know about it, but I don't think we can begin to imagine all the ways in which it's going to infiltrate our lives in the next 20 or 30 years. And, and Maya is going to speak to exactly this in our interview. I did read an article last month that has stuck with me uh, because it's it was Bill Gates talking about, you know, predicting what's going to happen with AI. AI, and he was saying, we're going to have AI agents. Everybody is going to have their own agent. And it's already sort of happening with otters in Zoom. If you've ever seen an otter appear to attend a Zoom meeting for its owner, then you know what I'm talking about. It's it's a little disconcerting. <laughs> uh, but, you know, our agents, and whether we're going to call it that or not, I mean, it's, just, it's essentially a, a personal assistant, but they're going to know our likes and all of this stuff. And I can imagine an agent recommending and curating books. Maybe they'll also read a book for us and summarize it if we don't want to read it or don't have the time to, uh, you know, basically do cliff notes that we can maybe then listen to instead of read. There's so many possibilities. My main concern has less to do with the fact that people are going to be using said agents because it's like assistant work or whatever, but more to do with like what will happen when we have AI spitting out so much content and then uploading that content onto IngramSpark or KDP or the equivalent. And it's just like the quantity of books and content is overwhelming to me. Like it's already an issue now, discoverability, you know, when we have something like 100,000 or more books being published every year. And so what happens when that becomes a million plus books published every year? Uh, you know, and the level at which we're generating content is already so profoundly high. And then you add AI to the mix. And to me, it's really head spinning. So that's kind of where I go into a little bit of overwhelm. <laughs> uh, so I'll kick it back to you, Grant. You know, what do you think? There's, there's so much we don't know, of course, and it's such a meaty topic. Topic. Yeah. Well, first, I just want to say I need an agent. So I welcome this. <laughs> You'll be first in line. Yeah. Especially if that agent can clean my bathroom. Uh, just sounds like <laughs> fantastic to have cheap, a cheap helper. Um, maybe not cheap. I don't know. But like you, you know, like everyone, I think we're all just in a state of 
anxious uncertainty when it comes to AI. And it's great just to hear about these kind of constructive possibilities for one, because I think a lot of the the negative parts of AI have been, you know, hyped a lot or talked about a lot and not to, not to, I mean, they're real, they're very real considerations, but it's nice to think about the opportunities as well. And I haven't thought about it too much on the publishing side, but I'm, I am concerned what AI will do to the writing process. And, And that's because when I think of writing, I think writing is, it has an element of discomfort in it. And that discomfort is a type of writer's block that occurs frequently when you're writing, you know, when you're searching for the right word or the right thought, you know, you're having to pause and and you're in a state of discomfort, but that discomfort is, is just an essential part of creativity. It's an essential part of you going deeper, you know, into your writing. And so as an older writer, who's grown up kind of practicing that discomfort, you know, I, I don't think AI will really affect me or my process at all, but I worry about um, younger people who, when they experience that, you know, small moment of discomfort, they'll they'll want to press a button and, and get text from AI to kind of finish the task for them instead of grappling with the challenge. But at the same time, I also, you know, wonder what is the satisfaction in that, you know, like we're storytelling creatures and, and we find meaning in the world through our stories and we want to express ourselves. So I just also like to think that that drive is bigger than AI. Um, and also that, that like the copy and paste technology, Maybe AI just becomes a, a great tool for more efficient writing, you know, like like maybe part of writing becomes using prompts really skillfully with AI and then and then working with AI to, to make that yours. So I don't know exactly what that looks like, but I think it could be one possibility. And also, I was thinking just just as, as the Gutenberg Press, you know, provided more access to books and increased literacy. Maybe AI will do the same for reluctant writers or for writers who are, you know, fearful to write. Maybe it'll be an invitation into writing. So that's my optimistic side, but I still think we need to, to struggle with the discomfort of creation in some way. That's great, Grant. I agree. I, I appreciate you ending on a note of optimism. We have a great interview ahead with Maya Thomas, so I'm excited to hear that. And for all of our listeners to hear what she has to say, we'll be back after a very short break. Welcome back, everybody. I'm very excited to introduce Maya Thomas, who is a graduate of the University of California in San Diego and of Princeton University. She began her career at Time Warner as an audiobook producer and director, working with authors, actors, and business people to bring their stories to life. And she joined Hachette in 2006 as vice president, Hachette Digital and Digital Publishing. And then in 2007, in addition to those responsibilities, she was appointed senior vice president, Hachette Digital of Hachette Book Group. She continued her professional development with courses at Simmons College in Boston and Henley and Inset Business Schools in England and France. And after a three-year stint advising startups and working as a consultant specializing in digital technology and publishing in Silicon Valley, Maya returned to Hachette in 2017 as director of Hachette's innovation program. And now she is the chief innovation officer at Hachette. Welcome, Maya. Thank you. It's great to be here with you, Grant and Brooke. Absolutely. I'm so, so excited to have you on today because... You know, to start, you were and you were are an audio and ebook pioneer, and you've you've been a part of so many publishing innovations. And so, I was curious to start if we can give our listeners a, a view into your career, and if you could tell us a bit more about your career in publishing and how it led to your role as chief innovation officer. Which, as I understand it, you're the only chief innovation officer in publishing. So that begs the question for me: What exactly do you do as chief innovation <laughs> officer? <laughs> I don't think you're the only one that has that question. (laughs) So I can start a little bit with just the beginning of my career as an audiobook producer. 
I actually started in Los Angeles at Warner Music. And that, of course, is part of Time Warner. And at a certain point, um, I was I came right out of graduate school and we were creating kind of study guides to the great classics of literature, music, poetry. Uh, and at some point, I noticed that we had this sister company, Warner Books, and they were selling their audio rights to places like recorded books and books on tape. Um, and I thought, well, we know how to make audiobooks. Why don't we do that ourselves? Um, so we started an audiobook division in Los Angeles. It was very early. I mean, this is in the early 90s. Hmm. There was no market, really. There was no retail market for audiobooks. It was all a library market. But I felt confident um, that it was going to grow. And so we, I convinced some people to invest in, in growing our catalog. Um, but I would say, you know, that I had an aha moment even before starting this, which was just listening to the radio driving around Los Angeles. And I heard David Sedaris uh, reading some of his diaries of being a house cleaner. I think, you know, there was like a, sh- the, a, a current of electricity that went through me and my hair stood on end. And I thought, this is the way we're going to be communicating. This is this is the way to communicate. This is a really unusual voice and an unusual uh, both voice in terms of voice, but also in terms of how he, he was writing. And I thought to myself, I'm going to work with him someday. <laughs> that, that was my dream. And then it turned out that he was published by Little Brown and I was able to work on his first audiobook. And we've worked together ever since. So we've been working together for more than 20 years. And I've done all of his audio books as well as his live shows like Live at Lincoln Center and Live at Carnegie Hall. So I got my dream came true. And and beyond that, my dream came true that audio was going to really be a big part of publishing because for a long, long time, I would say almost a decade, um, it was considered a kind of um, sad stepchild to the printed book, right? It was, they were abridged books, of course, and um, we only started doing unabridged when the market grew. So I agree that uh, that abridged books um, are not as good as print books, but there are ways that audiobooks, especially read by the right reader, can be um, just as good or even better um, than a printed book, meaning it's a different experience, right? You experience it differently. It's very intimate. If you hear an author reading their own story, it really makes a, a different impact than reading it in a kind of abstract voice in your head, right? You're hearing, you're in the room with the author telling their story or in, or reading their story. So anyway, I love my work in audio and I still do some audio um, as a, kind of as a side project. I still work on David's audio books um, and I like to keep my hand in. So it started there. That was my first aha moment. My second aha moment was when I was working in audio, but we were doing some investigation of different technologies and we went to MIT's Media Lab and we saw e-ink for the first time. So it was a screen, you know, where but you all know what e-ink looks like because we all know what Kindles look like and, and readers and rocket books and all the things that came before them. Um, but as soon as I saw it, it seemed clear to me that this was going to be a gigantic revolution in book publishing and that a lot of people were going to read in this format and that a lot of people were going to read on their phones. And that was not, uh, that was not an opinion that was shared by many of my colleagues. And that puts it mildly. And to even start to digitize our books to get ready for a market that wasn't there. Very much like when I started in audio, it was really a long um, process of convincing 
the CFO, for instance, that we should invest in this thing where the market didn't exist yet and that we would eventually make our, you know, make, make, make money in this way and that people would read on their phones and on these devices. So I was, I would say 20 years too early in audio <laughs> and years too early in eBooks, but um, history has shown that both of those aha moments uh, were justified. And you could say that uh, I, I've been looking really since then for the third thing, right? What's the third thing that's going to really be revolutionary for us? I think I know. And I think, you know, <laughs> I think we'll get to it. But, um, and I would say maybe I was, uh, I started working on generative AI in 2020. And so maybe I was only three years early there. Um, so the distance between what I anticipate and what happens is keeps shortening. And at some, <laughs> at some point I'm going to have to um, stop doing this because it'll be simultaneous and I'll have no more value to bring to the company. But for the moment, I'm still a few years ahead. Well, maybe that's exactly what makes you a chief innovation officer then, that shortening gap. <laughs> maybe the role will go away at some point. But at the moment, um, it's it's the greatest job that I could ever imagine. It's so much fun. I have the most amazing team. And um, we do, a, we kind of do what I did in as an entrepreneur in the company, right? We start small, we start either in a genre or in a territory, and we do a proof of concept. And we um, then evaluate how it works, right? And if we are able to prove a business model, if we're able to prove that it has, you know, market fit and has been accepted by either whatever constituency we have, if it's for the publishers, if they're convinced by it, if it's for readers, if they adopt it, um, if it's for writers, if we can give them new tools, then we'll scale it up either um, internally in the company or across companies uh, because we have four different territories, right? We work in English, Spanish, and French. We're headquartered in France and, you know, we have they're very, very different markets. And so um, just because you prove something in one territory doesn't mean it's going to translate to another, but we're always trying to find things that will have resonance for the largest number of people in the company. Well, Maya Grant said we're going to get to AI and we certainly are. We have a number of questions about it, but I wanted to ask, I guess, a question about specificity because when you're talking, you know, it sounds super interesting and I'm like, what are these innovations? So I'm curious if you could pinpoint one that serves as an example for, you know, how you evaluate something like that and then turn it into something tangible for the marketplace? Sure. Well, let me give you some examples. And, you know, we'll get to TikTok probably and, and, and the evolution of social media. But as social media evolves, right, with the rise of TikTok and the fall of Twitter, that really affects um, how we market and promote books and how authors market and promote books. Um, and you could think of TikTok, the TikTok phenomenon as a kind of bottom-up phenomenon, right? Where publishers and writers are surprised by what hits the community and what is, you know, what they unite around either themes or authors. Um, so that's something that we watched carefully and actually even before the rise of TikTok, we did some experimentation with what we call demand driven publishing. So what we would do there, you know, you can think of publishing as mostly top down, right? The, the editors, the publishers decide what the audience should or wants, and then they publish it and it takes years for that to happen, right? From the 
conception of the book or buying a book proposal to when it comes to market. But what we did is we studied the market, my team studied the market, and we would try to find um, trends where there were no books that existed that readers seem to be interested in, but where their searches just came up with nothing. And then we would hire writers to create the book and bring it to market quickly, very quickly, much more quickly than the regular publishing um, cycle in order to meet that demand. So that's that would be one example of um, a, an innovation, right? Really turning the whole publishing cycle um, in a different direction. And then we've done some work over the years that would be familiar to other kinds of consumer product companies. For instance, we used uh, a company that created heat maps to evaluate where the human eye goes on a cover or on marketing materials, right? That would be something that you know, Coca-Cola might do or any other consumer um, company, but not something that book marketers generally did. We also set up a site where readers could get early access to books. So we could beta test covers, titles, descriptions, and even content to see what resonated with a an engaged group of readers before we published, right? This is, again, something that you would see in other kinds of fields, but not generally in publishing. And that was a really interesting experiment. That's so interesting, Maya. And I'm going to turn to AI now, the big one. Uh-oh. Uh, yeah, uh-oh, or who knows? <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I remember very specifically when ChatGPT first came out, I feel like it was one hour in November 2022, and, <laughs> and, and Twitter just went crazy. Yep. Every writer on social media was posting negative apocalyptic reactions. And, it, yeah, it seemed like the sky was falling to a lot of people. And I just read an essay uh, by Margaret Atwood, which, which also kind of, uh, you know, echoed that fear. She, she wrote, I myself can then be dispensed with, murdered by my replica, as it were, because to quote a vulgar saying in my youth, who needs the cow when the milk's free? And yet when, when we pick up a book, I think so many of us, you know, part of that magic is connecting with another human mind, the author. And maybe that's just me, but I'm, but I'm just kind of curious what you see as the, I'm going to ask a broad question, what you see as the most important ways AI might change the ways we write and read in the near future. Is, is Margaret Atwood's fear relevant? Well, I agree with you. The hype cycle on generative AI was really spinning starting in late 2022 and throughout 2023. I mean, it was head spinning. It was for, it was vertigo for most of us who are working on it, right? But the good news is I've yet to see a poem or a short story that would threaten Margaret Atwood or any of our authors <laughs> anyway. I mean, the, people say to me all the time, do you know you can get it to write poetry? I'm like, yeah, but have you seen the dog role it writes? It's 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 like the most uh, elementary kind of poetry. Um, it's not. It's no poet. Poet needs to be threatened by what uh, generative AI can do now. And that human to human connection you mentioned is critical. I mean, that is something that generative AI does not have. Um, it also doesn't have originality, right? It's it's a pastiche of things that have already been written before and recombined. So it 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 has no way of of creating something original, except by a kind of mashed together, um, exquisite corpse technique, right? Where you get unexpected connections. But, you know, AI is a tool like many others we've seen. And I believe that eventually authors and readers will use it in ways we can't even imagine at the moment. As Ethan Malik said, this is the worst AI that we're ever going to see. We've seen it evolve just in one year in a way that is astonishing and phenomenal 
right? The the even the what I started looking at was GTP three in 2020, and now what you see with 3.5 and and four is is quite astonishing. Um, it's come a long way, but we're we're going to see it affect other fields a lot faster than we're going to see it affect publishing. I mean, this is. We hope that AI, we think that AI um, will be able to help us with back office stuff and drudgery and processes that are that are that are dull, um, but we do not see it on the warm side of the publishing process, that is creating covers or creating stories or um, nonfiction books that we that's not something that we're working on and not something that I anticipate happening anytime soon. Well, I'm curious because you were at the you were early, as you said, on digital and on audiobooks and GPT and generative AI has maybe been in the works for a long time, but now all of a sudden it's moving really fast. And so I'm curious, given that experience that you had of, you know, being in something that took a while to evolve, how do you see chat GPT and other generative AI as being different? Like, is it going to be a lot faster and how disruptive do you think it could be? Well, as I said, I think it's going to be more disruptive to other things than to publishing at the, at, you know, in the, in the short term. And chat GPT is not disruptive to publishing because we can't use it. Like we cannot put any of our content into these publicly facing uh, tools, right? Like OpenAI and chat GPT because they will be used for training purposes. And we don't want our author's works used for training purposes. And as you know, there's several lawsuits already underway by the Authors Guild and by the New York Times to say, you know, these large language models were built on the back of the labor of our authors and and that has not been compensated and that's not fair. Um, so what, the last thing we want to do is put any new elements into these search engines, uh, not search engines, these are the large language models. And there are a bunch of enterprise systems that have been coming out recently in the last six months where they're, they're safer places to um, put content and ring fence um, so it doesn't go out back to train the LLMs. And I don't want to get too technical here, but let's just put it this way. Enterprise models are great, but they're expensive. And so it all becomes a matter of, is there value to this tool for the company? And what is that value? And that is really hard to evaluate. Um, and you we're not able to start with very small projects because these big enterprise companies like Microsoft want you to start with a large number of licenses at a high price. So um, this, this will be a step that will be taken, I think, pretty carefully by, by publishers. Well, Maya, you wrote a, a great article on Publishers Weekly about publishing in the metaverse. And I encourage listeners to just Google that and read it. And as an example of what is a metaverse, in case listeners don't know, it's it's games, games with quotes around them, like Animal Crossing, Fortnite, Roblox, and Minecraft. And the reason I say they're games with quotes around them is because they also, also offer virtual spaces where people can create along with other people who aren't, they're not in the same physical space. And you talked about, for instance, in how in Minecraft, hundreds of fans have built Westeros craft. Uh, I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce it, but it's a, it's a detailed version of the world from George R.R. R. Martin's Song of Fire and Ice novels. And now those builders are currently working with fan fiction writers to imagine new storylines spawned by the environment they've designed. And I'm, I'm so curious about this because it's, it's, it's beyond choose your own adventure as a reader and as a writer. And I'm curious how 
people are becoming co-writers of stories um, and where you see that going in the future. Yeah, it's it's super interesting to watch. Um, one of the one of the pilots that we're working on right now is inside of Roblox, which is the place where most children spend most time online, right? So we're trying to extend a book series into this world, and we're, we try to go to where readers and potential readers are, and that's that's one way we do it. But we started being interested in virtual worlds. First of all, you know, as soon as you see a marketplace like this arise, you're like, how how can we get to that? How can we get to that market? But secondly, we became really interested in, in, in virtual spaces during COVID. You know, my team was, I would say, our horizon line was pulled back from we, we were looking five or 10 years out to what was happening. And all of a sudden with COVID, we were like, let's find solutions for the situation today. Like the problem is we're not seeing each other today. So, you know. We went beyond using Zoom to look at all these other virtual spaces of, of place, ways you could interact with people and you could interact with them with your voice or you could interact via avatar. And we, we did a bunch of experimentation and we thought that that was going to progress much faster than it did. It seems like Zoom and Teams have, you know, that seems to be enough for many people. Um, we we had a fun time, my team and I, joining meetings as avatars because you could just decide like today I'm a you know I'm a multicolored uni- unicorn or today I I have a cat head, but you know it, it's it became kind of um, you know a diversion. It wasn't a way of really adding value to our work meetings, so um, we left that behind. But what we are interested in is how readers can interact with each other and with the authors and with the characters, right? Because that's another thing you see with generative AI is that what people really want to do is talk to characters inside of books. And I know that's not what you just asked me about, but I think that 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 concept of interacting is something that we're going to see more and more. And I think generative AI is going to help the metaverse happen in a way that it hasn't so far um, because it, it allows kind of, co-production, as you say, or collaboration between people. And those can be creators, those can be fans. In France, we worked with a company called PowerZ to create a metaverse where journalists and readers could encounter book content and authors in a new way without the use of any special technology. They didn't need any headsets or anything. And I'm sure we'll be doing more launches like that in the future with virtual author appearances that can reach a wide audience. I mean, when you have an, a virtual appearance, you can literally have thousands of people dialing in from all over the world at the same time to, to ask questions of this author. And I think that's something that is great for them and, and very interesting for us. That's interesting because it segues really nicely into my next question, which is all about marketing. I mean, so like you said, you could have a famous author, someone like David Sedaris, and maybe that person could be a holographic image and they can get into more spaces and interact in all these various ways, which is super cool. And I like the idea of that, you know, it sounds kind of futuristic and maybe the kinds of things that you're working on. But I'm curious for average authors, you know, like maybe who are not... Margaret Atwood or David Sedaris or have, you know, the backing of Hachette dollars, what kinds of things are more, you know, like immediate marketing changes that you're seeing that are resulting from new technology? 
You know, it's funny because our division, uh, we aren't really focused on marketing. Hmm. We're really focused on, um, on innovation that can lead to business development. And if you think about the way that publishers are organized, marketing is a business spend, right? And um, business development is a way to increase revenue. So I don't work on a lot of marketing initiatives. So I don't have the expertise that maybe um, someone else on the on the team might have. We have done some experimentations um, with social media where we market, where we, we basically pulled a character out of a, a book series um, and had them interact with fans on Facebook Messenger, like to say, oh, guess what I've been doing since last summer and kind of tease the new book and then make it available in a serialized way on Facebook Messenger. So I would say that was a kind of marketing slash revenue generating experiment. But I have worked uh, a little bit on the holographic stuff. So I met with some companies um, that have been able to set up holographic booths uh, where an author can have a, a virtual author appearance in like 500 different bookstores at the same time, theoretically, right? And anyone in that bookstore could ask the author a question in real time, which the author would hear and be able to respond to. Um, so that is something quite new. And even though it's not in wide use yet. I've seen authors use it already. I mean, I saw Malcolm Gladwell um, as a hologram. He was he was asked to appear at someone's birthday party who was a huge fan of his, and he appeared at the birthday party. and the And the birthday boy was able to ask him questions about his work, and you know, everyone was able to interact with him. and And that was just a really fascinating use of. Of, I mean, he couldn't, it was on a ship, I think, a, a yacht in the middle of the Mediterranean and Malcolm Gladwell could not fly to that yacht, but he could appear as a hologram. That's so cool. Well, in closing, Maya, I'm going to ask you to look into your crystal ball and tell us how we'll be reading 10 years from now. And, and maybe if reading is the right word, I keep wondering if we're evolving into a new type of reading or, or, you know, what, what is the right word for what we'll be experiencing uh, in the future? And, you know, Will there be a place for conventional print books? Well, I have no crystal ball. If I did, um, then I wouldn't have a job, right? It, and a lot of my job is just about research and about kind of weak signals, like what is what is evolving? What, what are we seeing? And I think that what you're saying about whether we'll be reading differently is, is a great question. I mean, I do think that interactivity and being able to query a book the way you do with chat GPT now, right? You're able to ask a book questions, especially a nonfiction book, um, where it would answer from its own knowledge, not from this a large language model, but give you an answer based on the book content. That's something that I think we're going to see in education going forward pretty quickly. And what I like is that I don't imagine that in 10 years, uh, I think that we're still going to see print books on everyone's nightstands and coffee tables. I mean, the print book has shown itself to be incre incredibly resilient to change and an object of desire for many, many people. And, you know, when you give a gift, you can gift an audiobook or an ebook, but people really would prefer if you give them a physical book. And, and I would too. You know, they're indispensable. 
it cannot be replaced by these replica copies. But as I said before, you know, there's things that audiobooks can bring to, to the reading experience that is different than reading a book on paper. And I just don't know what we, I mean, I don't know what these technologies are going to allow us to do. And I know what I do know is that authors are interested in them, right? It's not everyone is, is yelling, the sky is falling. Some people are like, how can I tinker with this? How can this be a co-writer for me? How can this help me in my process? How can this be something that will, um, be, be able to surprise me as a creator, right? So um, I think Sean Michaels has, has talked about that uh, a lot. And his novel, um, Do You Remember Being Born, like really interrogates those, those questions of what it means to co-create with an intelligence that's beyond personal intelligence. Well, thanks so much, Mai. I appreciate how you called books objects of desire. They are. They are. We all want them. We want more. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Maya. So happy to have you on the show. It was delightful to talk to you. I appreciate it. We'll be right back with today's book trend after this short break. Well, Grant, it turns out that after fighting book bans, the AI debate and all that it means for book publishing was the second biggest trend of 2023, according to Publishers Weekly. And since you can't talk about the future of the book without considering AI's impact, uh, and since we had a robust AI conversation with Maya in this week's interview, this is the trend for this week's show. What have you got? Yeah, I'm just like, how on earth did AI become the number two story? <laughs> I, I guess that's really uh, frightening. About the book bans are bigger than yeah. than, than AI, uh, because it, but there have been you know a number of stories to track in 2023, and, and notably to me is the fact that there are, you know there have been a number of lawsuits mounted against AI companies that have fallen apart in court, and only two cases are moving forward now. The, the Authors Guild case, which, which has which is a fiction case, and then the New York Times case, which is a nonfiction case. And if either one of these entities can make some inroads on copyright protections, that will set a precedent, it seems. But, but so far, it seems uniquely difficult to challenge AI generation in any meaningful capacity. And, and clearly, that's going to have you know reverberating consequences for authors and for our industry. So I'm curious, Brooke, is there anything that you would categorize as good coming out of this debate? Well, in poking around on the topic a bit, I did find something that's not maybe good, but more of a counter argument. Uh, This came through Jane Friedman's hot sheet, which you and I read regularly, and she shared a piece by Dave Karpf. And he was talking about predictions for 2024. Uh, We will put his piece in the show notes for people who want to read it. Uh, But he was making the case that all of our fears about AI are overblown. And he did make an interesting comparison to Napster uh, in this piece that he wrote for Foreign Policy. And he walks us through the history of what happened with Napster and the parallels between Napster and our current moment of AI. It's very interesting. I mean, to remind people, Napster in the early 2000s had this similar kind of sky is falling impact on the music industry. And everyone thought music artists would be screwed because everything was going to be free from now on due to file sharing that would be out of control. Uh, And similar skirmishes and dead ends were coming on the copyright law uh, 
front. You know, there were lots of lawsuits filed, very difficult to get that all sorted out. And then Napster, you know, died. It basically went away. But that was because Apple came in and had a solution to pay artists. So the difference now is that Napster was never generative, you know, so there is a, a, a important distinction, I think, to be made. You know, what we're seeing right now is not just the taking and uploading and sharing of work and files. That's actually been going on already. It's called piracy and it's rampant and it's a total problem in book publishing. Uh, but AI is learning on human content. And so that little seed of plagiarism is inherently there. I, I think, you know, you mentioned Margaret Atwood's concern in that question that you posed to Maya Grant. And it's like, if it's generating content from our books, you know, or from Margaret Atwood's books or our articles, you know, and it's a machine that doesn't have the capacity to make nuanced or ethical decisions around that stuff, then I do think there's a cause for concern. So, you know, I, I'm ending on no, not good. <laughs> but, you know, uh, it, It's hard to say because we just don't know whether this is a blip or not. Yeah, I think it's hard to say is the way to, to summarize it. And and I found an excerpt from Publishers Weekly uh, on this trend. Interesting. They were they were recounting some news around an AI webinar that Publishers Weekly held in September where Michael Boscar, who's the publisher of Canelo, called the development of AI an earthquake moment. And he was pointing to things that we've been talking about now and on previous times we've covered this trend. You know, there's no in agreement on how to regulate AI and we don't know how to monetize it or how to pay content creators. And I think this year, maybe, maybe we'll find out if it is indeed an earthquake moment, just, you know, just how big on the Richter scale it's going to be. Uh, Dave Karp is saying it's going to be a one or a two, whereas Bosker and others are suggesting it's going to be an eight or a nine. So, you know, eventually we'll find out. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it was an interesting exercise for me to go all the way back to 2000. So thanks for asking about that. You know, when I started in this industry and just to remember where we were and to remember everything I was saying about digital and audio, not feeling part of the automatic publishing plan of every book. You know, there was no buying of ebooks and audiobooks with one click. There was no streaming. Amazon existed, but not in its current iteration. I actually remember the first time I heard of Amazon, uh, you know, and it being like this new, book selling space and clearly not comprehending how it could possibly work, you know, but boy, does it work, right? So we live into these moments and then they become our new reality and then they become our new normal. So here we are in the midst of a new reality and on our way to a new normal. We are buckled up for the ride with you week in and week out. We do hope you're easing into 2024 and we're looking forward to accompanying you on the journey into this year, throughout this year of writing inspiration. So thank you so much, listeners. We will be back next week. 